0: great great way to end our lenten study in in some ways I think this um this session was at least for me it, it, I, some in some ways this was the most fun to think about because this is the least based in any kind of actual evidence or th- th- there's a lot of tonight that is informed guessing and you could i mean you, I guess you could talk about how informed it is or isn't. But um, tonight, we, we want to look forward. So we spent several weeks thinking about where the church is, what the church is struggling with, where the church has been, how where we are might be different than how we've been. And that leads to the question of sort of where are we going? Where might the church be decades from now? Um, you know, wh- what do we see out there that may inform the path of the church, where is it headed? Um, and I, I would say I think of this in terms of the next 25 to 50 years. I, I you know there'll be some of this toward the end we're going to talk out maybe a little further. but I think some of this is not the distant future. Some of this is is not far in front of us. in fact, we're going to start with some speculation about things that we think we see happening already that we believe will continue and increase. And so, for instance, the first one we'll jump into, I think the church of tomorrow will be more local than national, for instance. Now, what do we mean by that? To some extent, that's always been true. But as the larger structures of denominations break down as presbyteries merge as synods fold as the general assembly lays off people as that happens for Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans things are inevitably going to shift to be more local we're going to be less cohesive with Presbyterians in california or colorado we're going to be almost of necessity more concerned with our own problems and our own context and and that's not new that that's kind of always been true but it's going to be increasingly true for instance about 10 years ago the denomination decided we didn't really have the resources and the need to meet annually so now the presbyterian church at our national meeting it happens every other year I think at some point that's going to be three years and five years. And at that point, well, fine, go do your thing. But it's not going to have a lot of impact. So one of the things we think perhaps we see coming is that the church is going to be um, more local. In in other words, not just do its ministry more local, but really kind of be more on its own.
1: So there's this thing that some of you... Uh, if you've been a lifelong Presbyterian, you know of the Book of Order. Anyone? Book of Order? Yeah, I see some hot net heads nodding. So um, the Book of Order, when I came in, this is different when Clint did his ordination exams. The Book of Order used to be very robust, almost encyclopedic in some of its mandates and dictates. If you're going to be Presbyterian, you have to do this and this and this and this. And when I took my ordination exam just a couple years before, they had significantly revised the book. They had gone and cut entire sections and they had essentially said that section in the book now has to be approved by the local congregation. It it has to be in your bylaws instead of being a national dictate to come down. And I've, I've watched that pattern happen in less concrete ways but I think that you you don't need to look hard in the Presbyterian church to find that kind of distilling of what used to be national conversation to now be the expectation of congregations. And I think that there is actually a, a, an odd struggle and interpretive gap there. And I know that Clint answers questions about this all the time, especially when it relates to some of the national issues that the denomination makes statements about. People will come in and say, well, what about First President Spirit Lake? What's our stance on this and this and this and this? Uh, You know, There's a fascinating kind of gap there between what the national denomination is talking about and the freedom that a local congregation and our leadership has to make decisions, which wouldn't have been the case even 15 or 20 years ago. So I think... Uh, To Clint's point, we already see this process happening. What I think is going to be fascinating is what happens for a congregation in the Presbyterian way in the next 10 or 15 years when they are looking for a new pastor, just concretely, hypothetically, right? Um, It's unlikely all of our seminaries will exist as they exist today. Financially, that seems like that would be uh, naive. And it's possible that our presbyteries are going to be unable to have the same kind of access and and kind of walk alongside ability because of the time and energy and resources. And if that's the case, how will then congregations then readapt to that and build partnerships so that a congregation can find a pastor? And, you know, this is an essential question we're going to come To it later in this section here this evening, but just to give you context, in our presbytery, which is I'm going to say 32 churches, it's I don't know what it is, something 30 churches. We have, by the way, 52 when I got here. Yeah, Uh, it's it's gone down. (laughs) Um, We have zero candidates for ministry under the care of our presbytery. There there is no one in process of seminary or discerning a call to ministry. So there. There is no one currently in track to take congregational leadership in our presbytery right now. And so this is a pressing need of of how congregations will adapt and build bridges to one another to enable leadership transfers in the future. And I I think that it'll be fascinating because I think we'll remain connected in meaningful ways, but we're going to rely less upon the institutional Structure to do that because right now it's not functioning in a way to provide what the churches need Is that fair? I'm not trying to be cynical, but I, I think that's the trajectory
0: Yeah, I, I think that'll be one aspect of this idea of a sort of increasing Congregationalism when when people come in and, and this isn't a value judgment It's just the reality of who asked the question when people come into first press and if they're older they generally want to ask, what does the Presbyterian church believe about A, B, or C? And increasingly in in my time, well, we don't have a, I mean, th- th- there's just less and less that you could say, this is Presbyterianism. Th- that's gotten pushed further and further down. Who we ordain, who we marry, those questions that, 15 years ago were our knockdown, down drag-out arguments, we're now telling presbyteries and churches, you guys figure it out. And, and I think that's going to continue. I, I think we're going to see, in the short run at least, we're, we're just going to see less guidance and, and less direction from uh, national bodies. I, I think that will be true across the board. The other thing that I think we're going to see, I think we already begin to see it, I think churches... Are going to emphasize less their historical and traditional roots Um, if you look right now one of the most interesting things that's happened in the last 30 25 years uh, things getting renamed we we did it with the Presbyterian camp which now doesn't have the word Presbyterian in the title Um, churches nobody's changing their name from Living Waters to First Press it's all going the other way. Churches that have been fourth or first, or they're they're now saying we're grapevine, we're you know community, we're whatever, singing rainbow. It, it, but th- the idea is people are are very firmly moving away from those kind of anchors that we. I mean, there's a reason half the churches in our denomination are named first. That was an institutional. That meant something. Well, it doesn't. In fact, not only does it not mean something, in a lot of cases, it hurts you a little bit. And so we're minimizing those connections. Um, In worship, I think we see a general trend to follow the community church model. I I think churches are becoming, to some extent, less formal, less liturgical. And I think that's going to be true for a while. Now, the, the asterisk on this is that you know things tend to swing back and forth and it may be that some of our younger people in in this day and age it may be that they get tired of everything changing and at some point they may say you know i just want to go somewhere where they sing old songs and do old stuff and have old patterns and and that may come back i don't think we'll know that yet for a while but i'm not sure that one is lost but it's not it's not uh, it's not necessarily uh you could advertise yourself as a formal liturgical church right now but i i don't know where that helps you I, I don't i don't know why you would you could but but i'm not sure that i'm not sure that's great marketing right now i i think people are much more interested in the idea of personal connection than they are historical or theological or denominational ties and And the danger of that going forward is that churches are going to be temptation to make them sort of personality driven versus content driven that model is leadership heavy which is why they start they grow really fast they get huge they blow up somebody gets in trouble they sink they disappear the next one goes Um, so there's a danger in that model that i think we have to be aware of but i do think that is the gravity right now. The the gravity is pulling that direction away from the sort of historical stuff that most Presbyterian-type churches do and towards a little something different.
1: Just a small spin on that. I think we as the church used to think that our job was to educate people with the best of the resources that our tradition has generated over the years. I think we've thought of it as handing off the baton I think we very much are inheriting an age where the church's goal is to evangelize believers, where, where people don't come in with any faith conviction. And so you're less interested in, well, are you, what, what's your thought on predestination? People don't have a, a thought on predestination because they're not sure about this Jesus thing. I mean, they, they don't know a hymn from a prayer of confession. And, and so some of it is teaching. Um, the very fundamentals of the faith in a way that's inviting, I actually think. And I
0: I, I think it even goes a, a layer down from there. Michael and I, I mentioned we had a Presbyterian meeting last weekend. Um, you realize how quickly you've gotten used to some things. They, they were, it was very old school. They went in with candles or they went in with the candle lighters, lit the candles, came back in at the end, put them out, marched the offering down, did all that stuff We haven't done that for a while. And I remember just thinking, "Ugh, yeah, can we do we need to do that stuff? What? Why are we doing this? Let's go. And yeah, so you get used to it fairly quickly. I I think we'll continue
1: to move away from some of that stuff. Um, One quick note on that. So worship is always an expression of the community, right? Worship is always an expression of the gathered people. And I think one of the radical questions of hospitality in the future is going to be, what are the practices of this worshiping community that connects with our people? And some of those will be things that we've done for a long time. And some of those things may be new expressions. And I I think that that's a fascinating conversation. And unfortunately, we often get trapped in this kind of distinction between, should we do what we've done or not? I think the right conversation, that's not a wrong conversation. But I think a, a, another helpful conversation is what are the practices that that communicate a connection to a living God for these people? And that helps generate a, an idea. So some of our some of our young people that live in a media-driven age and, and they they're you know we, we often lament all of the screens and all the attention stuff, right? All of that now, we, we can all admit there's stuff in there that we know is bad, right? We can admit that on the front end. But we might also know as a church that's going to affect how they will connect with their living God. And, and so we, as we seek to pass on the faith, should be thinking what's the most faithful way that we can provide the richness of our tradition in a context that speaks their language, and I don't know the answer to that, but I think those conversations will be essential in a thriving church, in a, in a growing church. Well, and, and to
0: our point, that is a lot less likely to come from the ground up than the top down. What, whatever that congregation decides is us is likely not going to come from Louisville. It, it's going to come from trial and error and experimentation and, and conversation, um, and moving forward. The the next trend I think um, this one's big for Presbyterians and we're not we're not good at it. Um, I think congregations are just going to have to be more nimble more flexible they're going to have to make decisions quicker they're going to have to adapt faster they're going to have to accept change more readily. Um, so <laughs> a, a little bit of a story and then a little bit of example um, my wife is is up with Emma this weekend. Emma had some volleyball today. So Jane went up. She's talking to Emma. Emma said she'll be home this week. I, I, I think maybe Friday. And J- Jane says, Hey, Emma wanted, you, wanted to know if you could save some of Thursday's communion bread for her. Because she loves Thursday's communion bread or Monday Thursday bread. And I said, no, I'm not. You know, it, the pastor kid wants she thinks of bread, and then I was giving Emma a hard time about that, and she said, you remember that You remember that bread we made at home for communion during COVID? That was really good. We should make that, and I, I had forgotten that, but you all might remember Rochelle helped with it a lot. We had a very simple bread recipe for people to make at home and then do home communion. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is um, about... I'll say four months. I, I think it was six months. I was, I'll was. i say four months. At the four-month mark of COVID, we got an email from the denominational headquarters that said, we've been working on a theological um, guidance for whether you can have communion at home or not. It should be ready in the next few weeks. Well, we'd already done it 10 times. I mean, we don't have time to hang around for a year in the middle of covid for a bunch of theologians to write us an email whether we can have communion at our house or not we do, the the idea that the presbyterians think we have the time to hunker down and study and there's there's something there's something good about that because we're not jumping off cliffs but you can't we we, we can't <laughs> we just we got to be we have to be a little bit more mobile than that um and and I don't want to beat up the denomination too much but but at that point four to six months into the pandemic there had been no national broadcasts there had been no hey send us your stuff and we'll put together a weekly worship service you know we could have been collecting material from all over the nation there was no website of resources there was no kind of national sharing the 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 stated clerk made a statement, and they did. They ended up doing some stuff, but it was not stuff. We, we were va- we were slow to that, and I I don't know that we're going to have the luxury of being that slow in the days to come. I, I think we're going to have to, uh, yeah. If we're going to make it, I just think life is going to have to move faster than that.
1: I think that some of our conversations moving forward in the leadership of a congregation like First Presence Spirit Lake needs to recognize that we live in a different time in the institutional life of the church than what we used to. And so we used to rely upon the folks who were delegated, equipped, and paid to do work for us in regards to our missionaries, for instance or we we trusted them to hand down the best policies and practices. Well, the reality is today, a majority of the policies and practices that we implement here at First Pres are done with our lawyer or our insurance people. They're not, they're not given to us in a booklet that are usable in this place. And that's going to happen more and more and more. And, some of a congregation's goal then in that is going to, I think, be to equip the membership to recognize that we, we are going to need to rely upon the skill set of this body in, in ways that we've not had to do before. And I think that some of that's actually an opportunity for engagement and good, uh, but we, did, we have built into some of our assumptions uh, that, that things are going to come down and we'll benefit from them. We have to recognize that some of those things, will eventually the, 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 that fountainhead will dry, and, and then we'll have to find ways to resource that on the way down. Yeah, the, the next
0: thing I, I think we'd say is, is counterintuitive. Um, you would expect that in a period of decline, the church is going to get smaller. And I think in some ways that's true if you talk about raw numbers. But I think the congregational experience may be the opposite. Churches that are going to make it are churches that are bigger. Small churches are are going to fade out. They're they're going to close. And most people, I think, in the coming generation who go to church are going to likely be in churches that are that are bigger. Right now, the average Presbyterian church has something like a hundred members. Most of those churches won't be with us in. 40 years 30 years 25 years in some cases so what does that mean that means most people are going to be in churches that are probably a little bit bigger and and i don't mean the church is growing i just mean the congregational experience is likely going to be places that have the resources to kind of weather some of those storms and and offer people some things and so um I think that's what we'll see in congregations. Now we may see some other things in regard to people's experience.
1: I only add I, I don't quote me on this because I, I can't cite this, but I believe I just read that the average Presbyterian church worship attendance nationally is 40 people. Uh, if you if you're accounting small congregations big congreg- I, I, I don't quote me on that, but it's it's smaller than you think because a lot of the small rural congregations, Feel an obligation to keep very high membership roles because of what it might mean if they removed you from the roles. You know, that spreads pretty quickly that, um, you know, Sister Betty's not been in church for 20 years, but we took her off the membership roles. That means something. And and you don't. So some of our membership numbers are even worse than what we're willing to admit because of the social influence there. And so just to emphasize Clint's point, I I, I agree with that. I think that. The question for small rural congregations will be if they grow into health, how will they resource and connect with other small rural communities and congregations? And I suspect that we may, uh, at some point in the future, I hope I'm not skipping on our sheet here, but I think at some point in the future, we're going to see shared leadership models, much like the frontier models that were uh, the first leadership models used out in the Midwest, where where you may have ordained leadership, but they're serving multiple contexts and the leadership in those places. I can envision that what used to be different buildings of different congregations become different gathering places for congregations managed in a far more co- collaborative way. I could envision small places adapting in that way.
0: Yeah. And we'll certainly talk about that in a minute. The, the one um, the one asterisk I want to put on the idea that churches it may be bigger to survive is that in some of those places I think you're going to see a kind of a redefinition of what a church experience means. They're not going to have a building, but there's going to be eight or ten people that get together in someone's home and, and they pray and they watch a video or they share devotions. I, I think you may see, and it's too early to tell but as the small church breaks down in areas, I think you may see it replaced by a, a kind of Christian experience that isn't congregational in the traditional sense, but, but is, is communal. Um, and, and again, that's an old pattern in the church. We've, we've had that. We've seen that before. But I think you may see something like that. Along those lines... Um, you know the country's kind of moving this direction right now i think you're going to see the church become more urban more of the people who go to church are going to be in larger areas that's just that's just math um what impact that has on the church uh, we will take some guesses about later but I, i think that's one of the realities as michael said i think you're going to see a shift in leadership training I think you're going to see a lot more of an apprentice model. I think you're going to see ordination. We've already seen this in our area. Um, There are almost as many non-ordained leaders in our presbytery as there are ordained. I think the traditional track of go to seminary, get a degree, go through the process, is not going to hold up. So you're seeing more and more, hey, this person has a lot of skills and let's train them up and see if they're willing to preach on Sundays, let's help them do that. And you're, I think that idea of the sort of trade school mentality is going to be replaced with an uh, apprenticeship in a lot of ways, which is going to increase non-professional leadership and lay leadership. You know there there's an upside to that. there's a downside to that. It's actually um, you could argue that that's the original pattern of the Christian church that that was how we did things at our inception. Um, but we Presbyterians haven't done that in, well really, in ever.
1: Yeah, so one of the ways that this is already happening is our uh, denomination, our presbytery at a smaller level has for some time had variations of a program that you could go through uh, as a lay person. And on the other side of that, you would be equipped and sent into a congregation to do preaching. how that's changed in the in my time here so in the 10 years that i've been here i i served on that committee that oversees people going through uh seminary and and going up into ministry so i kind of had a inside that track view for for quite a while for six years and even in that time it's fascinating we've built two other tracks in addition to that so now we've built a partnership with a seminary who has online classes and we have this thing that our presbytery puts on in conjunction with other presbyteries. And then there's also this like uh, twice a year intensive program that you can go to a place and you can, you can get this training in this place. And you know the reason why we have three tracks, right? Is because no one is going to any of the tracks. <laughs> we, we keep building new tracks because we need to find a mechanism that might work. And I, I don't say that to be sarcastic, I just I, I want to emphasize, I think Clint's point is exactly right. I think there will be, there will be congregations who will be well positioned to do teaching ministries Sort of like a research laboratory model, right? After you go through school, you'll go for some time and you'll serve in a laboratory. You'll be taught by people doing their job. And then you leave that place to do whatever your generative work is somewhere else. I can envision that happening in the church where a church makes it a part of its ministry for people to come through, to experience ministry, to do uh, maybe even some generative work in that place, and then you send them out to go do that work in in another place to be multiplying the skill sets of that. And I think, to use Clint's language, that's, I think, a, a factor of quantity. In other words, we only have so many ordained leaders literally within our bounds. So where, where would these people get field education training? But in a, a very small variety of congregations. And I think that Wise congregations in the denomination will, will build some of those ad hoc networks so that when a church of health and growth and vitality is looking for leadership, they, they'll know who to be talking to and calling to say, have you had a person through in the last few years? You know, I think some of that will happen organically where we've really trusted committee structures to harbor that. But here's the problem with committees. They're only as good as the input. Right? A committee can run a great process, but if you have no one in the process, it doesn't matter how good it is. So fundamentally, I think that congregations are going to find ways. And and by the way, maybe uh, this may just be me um, preaching a, a sermon um, to myself, but I, I think you all realize that First Pride of Spirit Lake has already done this. Uh, I, I think you realize, not in the ordained sense, but we've had several youth of this congregation spend time working here in this place, and they've gone out, and they do different kinds of ministries, but I do think we've seen some of that um, internship language. We've seen some of that equipping in, in interesting ways, and and we've benefited from that, and I think some of our youth have as well, so I... I don't think it, all of this is speculation. I think we've seen some of it in small form already. Yeah,
0: I think one of the greatest gifts that healthy places are going to offer the church in, as a whole is to say, send us somebody who has the capability to get it and let them hang out here and learn. And, and then they'll take that somewhere else. I, I think that's going to have to be formalized. Um, This is taking nothing away from Michael because he's gifted for ministry and ultimately they made a wise decision. But it tells you a little bit of how the denomination does something. I, I think you were in your first year here when they asked him to be on the committee that helps people prepare for ministry. In the year he's learning what ministry in a church is and he just like, I remember when they asked and I thought that is completely unfair. But he of course did it well, and they were yeah. But it, it's a it's a ridiculous thing to ask somebody who hasn't had a year of church under their belt yet. Hey, by the way, can you help other people get ready for that? Um, which is nearly impossible. Uh, the churches, We see this already. The church is going to be more collaborative. Um, small churches are going to have to partner. Churches, put, towns, and churches where there have been three churches, they're going to have to. And we see this. We see Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists sharing pastors, sharing buildings. Uh, That's going to continue. They're going to share programs. They're going to share facilities, um, leadership. I I think we see a a version of this when we pursue some interfaith dialogues, some initiatives. You know, right now, um, that hasn't extended. Those bridges haven't really extended to, say, the non-denominational church. Um, we have a lot to learn from them. They hopefully have a few things to learn from us, but those conversations aren't real prevalent yet. We're, we're not, th- there's some high-end theological conversation with the Catholics. There's not a lot of practical day-to-day kind of conversations. I mean, that's not in the foreseeable future ever going to look like ministry sharing, but it will look like support. It will look like encouragement. Um, I think, I, I don't know I've never bounced this off many of my colleagues my first year here one of my first weddings involved a Catholic priest at the time who came over here and then a couple years ago I got to go over and be a part of Lexi's wedding at so I feel like I'm a relatively rare Presbyterian pastor in that I've shared two weddings with a Catholic priest one at my place and one at their place and I don't think that happens real often that i've, I've never but i consider it a, a good sign I, and i think th- this idea of collaborative ultimately is a really good thing um you know it's a hard thing and, and we're getting there we're being forced in it to some extent but we're just not in a place where you're lutheran and i'm methodist matters much anymore we're, we're getting Past those boundaries, and we're getting to you're Christian and I'm Christian. Can we can we work together? Can we figure some stuff out? Because you're struggling and we're struggling, and and is there any way we can make this work? And I I think I think that's happening, and I think there's some. It, it's it's painful because of why it's happening, but there there are some
1: upsides in it. That's very positive. I'm sorry to bring a downside. <laughs> I, I I think there is a downside though, and I've actually seen this in a congregation that I'm helping. um, You know, the danger of collaboration is that you keep doing the thing that you've always been doing, but you just get other congregations to do it with you without ever thinking, should we be doing this at all? I mean, that's a danger, right? That you think, here's a program we don't have enough people for, but if you do it and you do it and I do it, then we can actually keep running the program. But nobody ever has the conversation, but none of us have people doing this. And so why are, you know, I think that is the danger is that we begin to think of collaboration as just simply continuing to do the, the same ministries we've always done. And I think vital collaboration is essential and will happen out of necessity. But some of those collaborations will be, will be new. I mean, there will be new there will be new understandings of people who the church is called to serve, and then these churches will work together to serve those people. I think there, we've just got to be careful to not get locked into trying to get more people to do the same thing and just reaching out to other congregations to enable that. So yeah. I think that's yeah. the downside. No, that's
0: fair. That's, that's fair. If, if by collaborative we just mean, you know, how long can we all stay on the same sinking ship, that's not, that's not a good plan. Um, the next thing and, and again we we're, we're beginning to use this language. there's this word in the church missional nobody knows, is exactly sure what it means. Most people who think they know what it means don't really understand what it means and I say that because Michael and I had the experience of uh, both studying under one of the professors who kind of coined the terms and when if he would hear how it's normally used he I know it would hurt him because he would explain that's not. It's not what you think it means in many cases. What I mean in this instance is I think churches that are going to do well in the coming generation are going to be evangelistic. They're, they're, going, to be, they're going to pursue outreach. They're going to go get people. Um, this idea that there are just people out there looking for a church and you just have to be good when they show up, that, that, that's, that's largely gone and, and fading fast. I think churches that are going to grow and, and do well are going to be attractive and they're going to seek people out. They're going to send members to be ambassadors. They're going to talk, have those conversations with coworkers and neighbors. They're um, We're going to put where do you go to church, do you go to church, would you like to go to church, kind of back in regular conversation if it hasn't been. Maybe, and if it's never been in conversation, it's going to have to get there. Um, I, I don't see... I don't see any way around that one. I think that one is, uh, yeah. I, I often, <laughs> my wife would tell you, I, I often think I'm right, but I, I really think I'm right. I really think I'm right on that one.
1: So, I, and I don't want to toot the first prize horn, but at our last or, or close to last one on, on this section, um, I do think we already see how the church is adapting to the digital realities of the 21st century? You know the the idea of um, reaching out to people, connecting with them, even when they're not physically present. You you know uh, how much uh, we have benefited from the ability for our remote members during the winter season to get to continue to be engaged with worship and education. So we've begun to see that. There's a way that we can stay connected with people even as they're mobile. But I'm very proud of First Press here because we, I think we're also we're seeking to always ask some of those questions. And so let me give you an example. You know, Our young families are in a really tough spot, as you know, especially uh, just to claim one group of them. The hockey families are really in a tough spot because for a couple months out of the year, they feel bad that they're just gone from church. Uh, and I've talked with these families. They, they that's that's a tough decision. I, I they're in church the rest of the yeah, 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 yeah. They're here as often as they can. No, this isn't a slight. It's it's to say that they've got a kid who's doing this really good thing, but that really good thing happens on Sundays, right? And so, one of the conversations our Christian Education Committee is working on a plan for this that's going to roll out in the fall. Actually, if all goes well, we're we are actively thinking. Our educators are actively thinking. Okay. So we have families that want to be in church. We have families who for reasons are not here. What what can we do to supply education and worship for them? So we're beginning to think about what does it look like for them driving to hockey to get to do worship on their phone and then for their kids to have the Sunday school lesson available to them on the way to hockey. Now, will we come up with a great answer to that? I don't know, but the point is we're, we're having those conversations about how can we utilize tools to make sure that folks understand that when you can't be here, we want to be with you. And of course, people may choose to not do that, right? And we don't expect that everyone's going to find that to be compelling. We don't expect you to want to do that. But I do think the growing church and the and the vibrant church is going to continue to think about how will these tools enable us to enrich and to, to pass on the faith to 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 folks in situations where they're currently they're not able to engage as much as they would like. So
0: one of the one of the gifts, and I know that's a weird way to speak, but one of the gifts COVID offered the church is it forced us to move that direction. It really pushed us into the corner and said, How could you utilize these tools to connect with people? to reach out to people to provide stuff to people and that's a that's a hard way to get there but i think what it may have done the pandemic might have moved us years forward in that idea because the churches that are going to end up doing it well found themselves doing things and said hey there's some upside to this now but even after pandemic even after covid these are tools that can help us and and i don't know that I think maybe we would have discovered them sooner or later, but I think it would have taken longer. Now, the downside of that is when we're in a digital age, not only the church, society is asking, "What does community look like on the computer?" Because I keep asking my youngest daughter, "Have you gone and found a church in Mankato yet?" And she says, "I just, I go, I, go, I come to church with you guys on Sunday morning," and I tell her, "That ain't good enough. Go find people." We'll find real people who are following Jesus and, and hang in with them, and she says, "Well, I just like our stuff." And so, I mean, it's great that she logs on, right? That's wonderful. I'm glad she's doing that, but I worry: is it is it community? Is it you know? And and that's going to that's going to take years to sort out what it means to offer people Christian community in a digital context. I I don't think we begin. I don't. Th- I don't think we begin to um, know that answer yet.
1: I I have people. You all know, you all know my propensities and and the digital nerd stuff. So I'm not gonna. You know. But because of people knowing that, I'll have people come to me and, and want to engage in conversations about technology and church and these things. And it's one of those situations where I find myself repeatedly. A person comes up and starts telling me, "But this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad." And I say to them. Yes. And it's worse than that. It's worse than what you think. That's the reality is um, if we wait for the denomination to get it figured out and for our best theologians to ruminate on this, we might have an answer in a decade. But nobody will be using smartphones anymore, so it'll be fine. Uh, uh, We have to live in the messy middle. We have to live in the place where life is lived, and we, we have to try some of these things. And I'll tell you, I also think that we, we are responsible to share the good news wherever the people are. And to whatever extent we can have a part in that, I think we're doing good work. If we are humble enough to recognize when we miss, and I'm sorry to say we're going to miss, we have missed, and we're going to continue to miss, but hopefully we can be God-honoring in the process
0: the last one and so we've kind of divided this into things that we're relatively confident about I, I think things that we think we could back up and then some things that we're going to guess on and and this one is somewhere between the two. Um, the, the Church of the next era the the interesting question, is in terms of the polarization we see happening right and left conservative liberal however, whatever whatever terms and i don't like terms but whatever terms you want to use what will that do to the church and one of the things it may do is that right now it seems very uncomfortable to be a place that tries to be middle to be a tr- a place that tries to let people from right and left interact and sit together and pray together and and wrestle with issues together. Right now, that's a tough. That's it's a tough moment for that. But I but I think I think that as we continue with this. We're going to find a larger and larger group of people who don't want noise on one side or the other, and want a place that, that is less volatile and, and more. I, I think people are going to be able to live with the mess, to kind of be in the middle, and and I, I don't have any way of I don't have any way of uh, documenting that yet. I. I think, though, that there are going to be an increasing number of people who appreciate nuance and gray, which is not the case right now, but I think one of the things Presbyterians offer is an opportunity to be that kind of place, and I do think that may be attractive in the the years to come, but. But we'll see let let let's let's stop there before we get into the the more big picture longer picture stuff um comments questions about anything you've heard doesn't make sense don't agree follow up anything of
1: interest that's really help that's a helpful distinction thank you yeah so let me name my point on that so um i i think that what we've learned or what we're what we're learning is that the church can have micro extensions into people's lives that serve differing purposes based on the person. But I don't think that any of, I, this is firmly rooted within the idea of a congregational vitality. So I don't foresee a future in which real, that's not helpful language, physical people gather in physical spaces to do physical worship. That That's going to happen. I think what what I meant to talk about, and I'm sorry if I was unclear, is I think the church, the, the church is seeking to find ways to do Christian education in an era where people, wa- where, where people think that the way that you do things is by clicking the play button and then skipping to the next video and skipping to the next video. In, in other words, I'll, I'll tell you this. For the longest time, uh, we, were, we were I was vexed by the idea, why can't we get our 30 to 50-year-old people, let's say 25 to 50-year-old to people in Sunday school classes? Why can't we do that? It vexed me. Maybe it's topics. So we tried different parenting topics. So we tried different this topic. And then we thought, well, maybe it's the teacher. So we tried a, a teacher thing. And we, we could not get that age group, in my experience, in Sunday school. And it, it just bothers me because I, I think that matters and we should, you should be here. So then we tried this podcasting thing, Lynn. And then I sat at a basketball game. We were about three or four podcasts in. And I had like four parents of those people I was trying to get in classes come up to me and say, you know, I've been listening to that every time I go to work. And it's great. And I, I love it. And I thought to myself... I would love to have you there, but I'll take it. Like that, those are the compromises. Like I, my hope is that that we will continue. My expectation will continue to do these physical things. But the example, I mean, I have mentioned hockey families before. It's the same with softball families. You just name the thing. My hope is that if there's a time frame where you're down south because you're a snowbird or you're a, you're a. You're a hockey family, or a softball family, or you're whatever family. And for some reason, there's a time you can't be here. The church is available to you in a meaningful way. That's all that I mean.
0: I think those things will continue to be supplemental, and you know, I I think the thing that they offer us, Lynn, and and again, I I don't. She might not be comfortable. She wouldn't be comfortable. So let's not tell her we have this conversation. But but mentioning Emma, um. If Emma didn't come to church online hmm, I don't know fifty fifty she'd go somewhere, probably more like twenty eighty so i I do think our choice with some of those people is to provide something or i I don't think I don't think if we stop sending it to them, they all of a sudden show up here I guess is what i mean i I think it really is this is going to be our connection with them for for whatever reason in the immediate future and maybe it changes maybe it doesn't um and i th- you know that's a real issue there there's a guy in lincoln nebraska who's doing this instead of going to a church in lincoln well i i'm glad he's doing this i wish he'd go do that but until he does maybe it's maybe it's good that he I, you know i i don't know i think those things are going to take us a while to sort out. And, and as we go through and we have the conversations and we meet the people and we struggle with the issues, it, it will get revised, you know, but you have to steer a moving ship. And yeah.
1: What, one last thing, and I'll be really brief. Um, and another aspect of that, Lynn, that's really, I think, interesting and has been generative for me is um, just imagine all of these rural communities in Iowa surrounding us, our fellow Presbyterian churches, we, as we continue to close them, there will still be Presbyterians there. And I, I do have this burden that says that some of the things that a healthy, vital congregation generates is not just for our people that there may be a day in which the stuff that we're making together as a body actually serves those Presbyterians. So if they're getting together in someone's home, that they might have a place that they could turn to with a sermon in the reformed tradition, that they might have a Sunday school class with discussion guides that they could have in their living room. So like beginning to think that it's not just for the sum total of our people, but also thinking because these tools don't cost us anything for them to participate that actually we have our members who are in the building we have our members who we're reaching in ancillary ways and we have people who we don't even know who they are but we can offer what we have out of our riches that if they can use it thanks be to god so i i think like keeping all that straight's difficult but i think all that's in play
0: other question yes both i think i mean um our context does not do well with eighteen to thirty-year-olds, pre-kids, and singles. Those are, if you look at the groups we've struggled with in in the mid-size, midwestern, smaller town church, I, those are the groups. We part of it is it's not as many of them here. Part of it is the, the sort of whole way of life is geared toward marriage, family. You know those pillars, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, for sure. That's uh, I think that is dead
1: on. Yeah, and we we have had some efforts at um, that young adult ministry, and um, some of that some of that got hit pretty hard by COVID. Um, but but I think that Tony, that that point is is clear, and I I do think it reaches the. How do we as a congregation equip people with hospitality gifts to do that also? To, we, we need to raise, hey, there's a whole group of, of young people that we can reach out to. I, I think that we should have conversations about what it looks like to programmatically do that in a meaningful way. Yeah,
0: 100%. Tony, I think that's a place we'll be more collaborative. I think that's a place where we don't have it, and the Methodists don't have it, and the Lutherans don't have it, but all together we've got 12. So let's get them together. I mean, I think that's a place where that kind of conversation might bear some fruit. Um, Okay, very quickly, a couple of guesses. These these are some things. These are sort of big meta things, and we'll go through them quickly. Um, These are these are things, interestingly, that I could see going one of two ways. Michael and I have had a little bit of conversation Um, right now, particularly if you look at midline of the church toward actually you know what it's probably fair across the spectrum right and left um the church is increasingly issue driven the the church is big on hot buttons the the culture comes up with a thing and the church jumps all in on it um whether on the left that's something like race on the right it's something like abortion or homosexuality It, it it's the same mechanism it's it's a different way of getting there and it's different issues but it's it's kind of issue driven and the church feels compelled right now to weigh in on most issues and and does so all over the board loudly sometimes not very pastorally sometimes not very wisely but um there there's sort of cultural cues and the church is largely taking its lead from things in the culture and it will be interesting over time to see whether the church navigates more issue-driven or less issue-driven. I, I can imagine a time in which that pendulum swings and the church says, we don't have answers to all the issues in the culture, nor are we going to try. We're, we're going to make space to be patient with those things and, and not hit people over the head with them up front. Um, I think the same is true of more or less cooperative. I think you're going to see some churches become more collaborative. I think you're going to see other churches sort of isolate. Um, I I think um, you're seeing some of that. uh, You could say it again in terms of globalists. You know, we live in a world that is increasingly global. And I think some churches will lean and embrace that. Our other daughter, Bailey, and her husband, Peter, um, they're up in Minneapolis. They've intentionally sought out a church that is multi-ethnic. They're going to a church that is essentially a black church trying to be a mixed church, um, but the roots of that church are African-American. And Bailey and Peter did that intentionally. That was important to them. And I, I think in our younger you know the the millennials find stuff like that appealing um and and i think in places where the context allows it we we may see more of that and then there will be other churches that i think shy away from that very strongly they'll they'll dig in and kind of be more like one thing this is our thing and our way of doing it and and i don't know ultimately those things may just run side by side um, or, or we may see the church tend one direction or another. I think it's too early to tell, but I think we see the beginnings of both movements, or, or at least we see movement in both directions. I don't think it's the beginning. Um, but that, that one I think will be interesting. I don't know if I'll be around long enough to see where it goes, but um, I, I'm curious about that one.
1: You know, for all this talk over this whole series, we talked about you know how difficult things are, how the church is changing, declining, et cetera, et cetera. You know where the church, where this conversation's irrelevant, is Africa. This conversation's irrelevant in South America, where the Protestant is growing at remarkable rates across the board. Uh, I do think there's a time in which some of our greatest thinkers and theologians, some of our greatest leaders, maybe southern hemisphere people. The, 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 the church may lead churches that we used to consider mission fields may be centers of Christian thought and life. And we would be very wise to be open to those perspectives and to that life and that vitality. We, we may one day host missionaries from their countries, which I think would be an incredible kind of gospel turn that God would be able to to make entire fields grow and then those fields can plant other fields. I, I just think that that's a beautiful idea. And I do think that the future of Christianity is, is going to have the music and the books and the leadership and all, all that stuff that we, we've uh, enjoyed and some of that we may get to hear from different voices. And I think that will be interesting to see. I, I,
0: I agree 100%. I think there's a very strong chance that the church of the future is less Western um, if you've traveled Europe, you've seen uh, what happens when a kind of place that used to be Christian declines, and now they have buildings, but they don't have congregations. They don't have a, a, a strong faith life, though they have the remnants of it. Um, we, we've seen some of this, you know, coming out of Nazi Germany. We had men like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer who were foundational thinkers of the 20th century wrote in German which we've translated and have guided generations of pastors Um, I I think in the next 50 to 100 years that may be somebody who writes in Korean that may be a dialect in Africa I I think there will be a day when some of the most prominent prominent leadership in the church um, at at a theological thoughtful level I, I don't mean pastors there are already wonderful pastors of all kinds of stripes but, but I mean the kind of names like Bonhoeffer and Bart, may, maybe Kim or some other, you know, an African name. Um, I, I think that's I think that's likely in our future. I I, I think it will be interesting to see where that goes. Um, global influence is, is going to matter in the, in the next generations. I, I really believe that. Um, I think that I think we've covered, you know, maybe one other one. Um, again, it will be very interesting to see. I mentioned racial stuff. It would be interesting to see if the church is more or less segregated in the years to come, if it gets bigger, if it gets more urban. It's likely in many cases to be more diverse. i, I tell you the nut that no one has cracked yet is age. The, the strongest, the strongest uh, barrier right now in terms of getting people together is to find a. Ch- there are churches that are doing great with thirty-five-year-olds, and there are churches doing great with sixty-five-year-olds. Not always doing great with both, <laughs> and uh, it'd be interesting to see if there's a way to navigate that. Um, I, I don't. I don't know of anybody who's really really sort of got it figured out up and down the whole spectrum yet uh, that that's a tough one and I, we'll see where it goes I mean to some extent to some extent that's harder than some of the other issues um, I don't anything else Michael comments questions kept you longer than we needed to all right hey thank you um holy week thursday we'll be back here friday we'll be in the sanctuary both of those 7 p.m two services on easter um a few other things going on so 5 30 is recharge wednesday. on wednesday bible study for the ladies has moved to 11 on tuesday men you're still at 9 30 on thursday yep there's it's a busy week so lots of chances to be involved hope you take advantage of some of them thanks for your time